0: This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Omar Tate. Omar is the chef behind Honeysuckle, a pop-up that explores the story of blackness through food. This week's pop-up was one of Omar's most personal to date. Hear what went into it, what's next for Honeysuckle, and why you should get ready to send Omar $100 for a pie. We're back Monday with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Omar. Omar, hi.
1: Hey, how are you, Howie?
0: I'm okay, man. Uh, you did a pop-up yesterday. Um, these pop-ups are becoming beloved at South Philly Barbacoa. How'd it go? What did you cook? Who came out? How you feel?
1: It was... a uh... You know, this was one of the more uh, personal ones that I've done. Um, over Memorial Day weekend, um, I spent some significant time with my aunt uh, and learned a lot about my grandfather from from her. Um, and learned her, he was a Vietnam uh, War veteran. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, he wasn't stationed in Vietnam. He was stationed in Germany. Um, so he, during that time, he kept a photo journal of his, of his experience there. Um, that was, it was like really poetic, really beautiful shots, and um, you know, learning learning about him and who he was. He was also a black, you know, a black rights um, activist in South Philly when he came back, and raised two beautiful daughters and started a community center. So it was really an ode to him and the things that he loved and the things that he represented. So um, my my heart, not that my heart is never like my my heart's always in my in my cooking, but it was like a real full circle moment um, for me to be making this meal and learning these things about him and then serving it to people. So. Um, I was very happy.
0: James James Jameson was his name.
1: hmm Yeah, that was his name.
0: And what, what prompted this this discovery into your grandfather's history now?
1: You know, um, I've been wanting to talk to my aunt for a long time about my grandfather. You know, grow, growing up with my mom, um, she's told me a lot about him. But people experience people in, in different ways, especially as family members. You know, you go to a funeral and your brother or sister could have a very different perspective or feeling towards their parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle um, period. And, and these things are kind of like the, the, they're talked about, um, at the funeral. So, um, he was, he died before I was born and I've never gotten my aunt's perspective. So, uh, this was just like the perfect time to talk to her about him, not knowing any, anything that she was going to reveal to me about him. And, uh, my, my mom never talked about that war experience. She, she always talked about him being a black Panther and stuff like that, but not about that war experience. And, and to me, um, that war experience is, is incredibly necessary in the story of black, of black folks as American, you know? And I've always looked at him as like this really incredible figure in my personal history as like um, an, an activist and just like a, a, a figure um, in, in my, my own personal Black American history. But this story situates him directly as a human in our American history, which is what my work has always been trying to um, position anyway. And it was just so it was incredibly satisfying to 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 see that
0: How did you devise a menu based on that? How does something i mean your food's always really personal it's It's about the experience of of blackness in america. It's um been described as black history. On a plate, right? By uh, Nerea Otieno, who wrote a, an amazing article about you earlier this year. I think it might have been last year. By this point, I have no clue what's <laughs> happening with with the passage of time. But but she said she said that edible black black history. So kind of adding a family layer onto it. Mm-hmm. Um well-
1: I think that that's the most important part. Like these personal touches are the most important part because we kind of get stuck in history, right? You know, um, as it's taught to us or how it's read or how it's presented in a very general way, especially if you're coming from school or academia, Um, it doesn't necessarily get into the nuance of of any identity, period. Like it doesn't matter who you are, black, Indian, you know, Chinese, whatever. Um, The way that we learn about our history is kind of like blanketed so that we can consume as much and, and absorb as much and learn as much about a culture in like these neat little packages, right? Um, but me learning about my grandfather um, and making this menu, I literally just asked my mom and aunt, like, "Yo, like, what, what did he like to eat? What were his favorite things?" And um, and then there was also a picture of him grilling uh, New York strips for soldiers um, on, on on base. Or I'm not I'm not really sure where they were, but they were. You know, he was in the military when it happened. And um, I love playing with these notions of uh, I understand what people think black food is in their mind when you say, I'm going to make a black dish or I'm going to make a black meal. Um, and I'm like, well, actually, we like a lot of shit, <laughs> you know? Um, and understanding this and really diving deep into my personal history or reading novels or reading literature, specifically like Zora, Zora Neale Hurston or you know Langston Hughes, um, where they kind of like... They create whole worlds and environments with their words where you, they, you enter a space of blackness and the food is just kind of like proxy you know, to, to that. I can inject that into a dish and, and into a meal and, and represent that world as well or, or create one myself. So by, um, by asking those questions, uh, I create more layers uh, or expose more layers to an existence, which to me, um, my hope is from like linear, like heart to heart, uh, you can find the humanness in blackness, which is not always, obviously, as we can see, over, you know, what's transpired over the past two weeks, it's not always understood by people.
0: You wrote on your Instagram feed uh, that one thing you really admired your grandfather for uh, was the way he combined masculinity and tenderness. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, how do you combine those values in a moment that's about both protest and pandemic when, when we're all so vulnerable?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that I necessarily have to combine it. It's already intertwined. If, if you're, if you're a person, everyone has those moments, but whether we choose to talk about them or not, are you know, that, that's, that's up to us. But, um, to me, it's about people recognizing that it's specifically in black men, you know, um, we have to see it. I love that those photos were taken of him hold, holding my aunt like that. Um, the, the, the love note that he wrote to her, where he drew a flower, um, you know, people, people don't see that, um, or they choose not to see that from from us. And you know, with me writing poetry and um, the way that I create my meals, and, and the way that I speak publicly about myself and what I'm feeling and um, and what I'm thinking, uh, are, are me intentionally exp- exposing that that tenderness, which which doesn't devalue me as a, as a male, you know. Um, and there's a, there's a stigma, of, again, across, across cultures and, and, and ethnicities about, uh, you know, tenderness and, and, and masculinity, where you're, you're looked down upon if you, if you expose those things or express those, those, those parts of yourself. Um, and so I, I found, in learning that about him, how, how important it already was in my family and in my history.
0: Um, before, you know, all the COVID shit started in, in March, you were doing these amazing honeysuckle pop-ups. You the honeysuckle still the name of, of your pop-up, but the slant was a little different. They were in, you know, penthouses in, in New York city and it was 150 bucks ahead and it was, it was fine dining. Right. And And now you're doing, you know, 15 orders for 50 bucks a set. I think there's an a la carte aspect as well where people can kind of get what they want which which makes total sense Um, i'm wondering um how much you care about the fine dining aspect right now and whether your focus will continue to be on something more for the people going forward
1: well I'll, i'll answer the second part of your question first uh i am going to do both in the future i want to do both fine dining and i want to do more you know um community focused uh aspects whereas previously I wasn't super interested in doing, like community. Not, not not that I wasn't interested in community. I wasn't interested in devaluing the the, the price uh, or devaluing the work that I do um, that is worth the three hundred dollar price point, um, so that uh, more more people could eat it. And that's not to exclude people. Um, it's just for me. Uh, I've worked in kitchens for fourteen years. I've been a cook for eleven years. Um, and something that I've always seen um, that I wanted to see for myself was how white chefs, white male chefs, have been able to price their food at whatever price point they want, receive however, uh, however large of a profit margin from that, and then take that money and reinvest it into whatever particular interest that they have or whatever interest that their community has, and that upholds white supremacy, right? Right. Uh, or aids in upholding white supremacy, or or upholds the the, the capitalist um, system that that keeps those people in power and in and, and places of decision making. So I wanted to do that <laughs> with my dinner and reinvest in my community in ways that um, I haven't seen before. Those those reinvestment um, ideas uh, centered around um, buying from Black minority producers. I'm um, centered around buying a, a structure or buying a place that would benefit my community. Um, the hiring who I think is valuable and desirable and promoting those people and, and uh, stratifying and uh, and hiring black folks at all levels um, in, my, in my business. So like if Thomas Keller can uh, charge you $1,200 for some, for some wine and and I, however many courses, I can do the same thing with with my work and supporting the people that I'm trying to support. Um, capitalism has never been a, a system that has supported black folks. And I wanted to use that that system to turn that notion on its head. It, it really bothered me that, it still bothers me that um, oftentimes when black folks are doing stuff and they're doing stuff for, for a lot of money, there seems to be this assumption that we also should be uh, donating or giving or doing something philanthropic with with our time and our money and we're the community that needs to be receiving this money the most and doing what we want with it the most so that we can, um, build, build up, build back up to uh, an equitable position in this country. So I was, I was in complete denial of doing any sort of like donation based anything like pay me, like pay me (laughs) for real. Um, and that's, that's why I was doing it. Um, but now, uh, since things are are shifting um, and there are forty million people who are on un- who are unemployed right now um it doesn't it doesn't make sense to only focus on that i'm still going to do that because there's still it's going to take a lot of work for people to to uh you know for all of us to um find some sort of like homeostasis <laughs> you know what's whats what's uh what's going on so um in this time. It would be very isolating for me to continue doing that work in the way that I was doing it, um, and it would isolate a lot of people. Even even the people who were paying for dinners before are paying more, uh, like just paying very close attention to their wallets. And uh, so I think that I can do both, and I think that I should do both, and I, th- I think I should be doing both for the rest of my life.
0: One of the ideas you have surrounding doing both is, is you've put forward this, this plan, this proposal to sell bean pies this summer. A hundred bucks a pop to raise $100,000 to buy a building in West Philadelphia to start a community center, uh, which will feed people, teach people, do, do other things. Tell me about where that idea comes from. I think it's a great idea and I can't wait to give you a hundred bucks for a bean pie. <laughs>
1: um, I mean, that, that, that idea, well, there's a couple. Obviously, like the history of like the Black Panthers and like the civil rights movement and engagements, um, there were several different fundraiser programs um, that exist like that, but maybe not at such a high price point. But um, the bean pie idea is directly related to the Nation of Islam and how they supported their um, their program. Um, But the hundred dollar idea came about within several conversations I've had with people about selling bean pies. Initially, i was going to sell it for ten dollars. Um, and I was going to have to sell them for, I would have to sell 10,000 bean pies. Specifically, I spoke to my friend, uh, Tunde Wei, and he was like, why would you do that? Like, he's like, charge, like, he's like, go, go, for, the, <laughs> go for the artery, charge $100, and then you sell less bean pies. He's like, you already have uh, the momentum, and people already understand what you're doing. He's like, it's not about the bean pie, it's about, it's about what you're building. He's like, people will, it's an investment. And I'm like, yo, you're right. Um, then we went on to talk about how Nipsey Hussle, Nipsey Hussle did the same thing with his CDs. Um, he was selling $100 CDs, uh, mixtapes out of his trunk um, back back in LA. So, um, you know, like this sort of like spirit has always been within our community of just uh, self-galvanized movement um, towards, towards an end goal that benefits not just, not just us, but uh, the community at large. So even before the pandemic, this was a conversation. Um, these, this is a conversation i 've been having since the uh since the beginning of the new year, where I knew that I wanted a place and I wanted a space um, and it 's intertwined with the fact that uh the the traditional restaurant as we know it is dying it's it 's pretty much dead it was already dead um and we were kind of like <laughs> just walking atop its skeleton you know over the past like i don 't know how many how many decades but it's it has not been sustainable and over the past five years. Um, it's just been getting worse and worse and worse, and every day it's just getting more and more difficult. And uh, this pandemic really exposed a lot of restaurants. You know, um, the, the the really, really expensive hoity-toity joints, <laughs> you know, um, that people go to, uh, were the first ones to put up GoFundmes because they couldn't pay their staff. So um, I just I just knew over the past three years that I was not going to open a tradi- a traditional restaurant as as we knew it.
0: Tell me about Smoked Turkey Necks in 1980s Philadelphia, because I think that's one of the antecedents for why your community center and restaurant needs to exist, why, where it's going to exist.
1: So that came from uh, the, the MOVE bombing that happened on May 13th 1985. My, my family, they were connected to several people who were organized with, with MOVE. Uh, my uncle Harold knew uh, uh Abu Jamal and all this stuff, you know, if, you, if y'all don't know who Mumia is, he was a, he is an accused cop killer um, who's serving um, now, I think, a life sentence. I think his death sentence has been repealed. Um, but they, they said he was a cop killer. It's been disputed whether he did it or not. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of civic and, and civil unrest in the 70s, 60s, and, and, and 80s, um, where basically the, the cops were, basically they, they acted like a gang or a militia against... Um, black folks throughout the city. Um, And it culminated in a moment um, on May 13th where the city of Philadelphia ordered a a bomb um, to be dropped on, I guess, like the stronghold of MOVE, which was situated right in a community um, in West Philadelphia on on Osage Avenue. And so, you know, uh, I was born exactly, uh, man, 363 days after that event occurred. Um, and I, I, I really feel a spiritual connection to things that have happened before me. Um, there's something about being in the belly of a mother who's situated in that, in that sort of thing. And like, obviously hearing those kinds of conversations and stuff. So like, I don't know, I, I felt like I was born into this turmoil. Um, so I, I wanted to create a, create a dish, uh, that, that examined that. Um, and so that's, that's where it came from. The... The, the turkey that comes from like language or jargon around like dried turkey and how turkey has been used like colloquially in and, 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 uh, in black communities throughout the '70s and throughout activism and stuff um the, the smoke part I situated the the dish well I smoked the turkey themselves, but then I situated the dish on on hay that I set on fire and smoked as the diner was eating it so that they smelled that that, that smoke coming up from the plate while they looked at a black like matte piece of turkey um, it was kind of car- carnal. You know, and that's what I wanted, because that whole, that whole thing was carnal. They, they, killed, five, they killed seven children um, and, and, arrested, and arrested two people and called them terrorists after having a bomb um, dropped on them. So part of the beauty of what I do with Honeysuckle as, as an art piece is I'm able to create these meals and have these conversations. And whether people find them to be beautiful, pretty or not, is not the point. Um, the point is to ingest uh, the truth.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have to thank you for creating that dish, first of all. You know, I mean, I can't tell you how many tasting menu dinners I've sat through where someone's trying to tell the story of, of the hillside and the goats eating the flowers. And like, <laughs> it does. It tastes lovely, man. Like goats who eat, eat flowers for their entire lives are, are delicious. But there's no story there. And it's always offended me as a journalist and as a writer and as someone who studied that craft to hear chefs say we're telling stories. It's like a caption. It's not, that's not, that's not a story really. I mean, you know, if you get into the geology deeply or, or the sort of earth sciences deeply, then maybe it's approaching a story, right? But you're, you're telling the story of a major metropolitan police department bombing a neighborhood block, setting it on fire uh, burning 60-something homes to ashes, leaving a couple hundred people homeless, and killing children. There is an important way food can tell stories, and that, that's how to do it.
1: Right. That's right. it. Yeah, I mean, that, it's funny you mentioned this, you know, goats and flowers. Um, I, started, I started creating dishes like this because uh, I've always wanted to make food like that but every time I saw it on chef's table or I saw it at the restaurant where I was working at, I'm like, this is not my story. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not rural. I'm, I'm not going to be able to backpack in Italy. You know, I'm not going to be able to do any things or, or, or <laughs> take months off and stodge at some random ass farm somewhere, you know, and pick flowers myself. And like, I, I, I couldn't do no more. I was never going to go forage, you know? Um, but I always wanted to create food like that. And so I had to figure out what my flowers were and, you know, both, Beautifully and not so beautifully all the time. My flowers just look different.
0: Yeah. I mean, stories that move people have tension. They, ha- they have tension. They have a lesson. They're, there's evidence of change in, in the stories. I mean, you're, you're making a tasting menu that's about life and, and death, you're doing a tasting menu where survival's a question, it's not a right.
1: Mm-hmm so
0: you know i will sell a lot of bean pies (laughs) a thousand bean pies that's 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 a that's that's a hittable bar
1: right i think it's totally doable
0: are you are you amping up for next week's pop-up are you committing to do one of these a week or is it kind of when you have the energy and and the resources
1: um the most amazing thing about uh covid and and me kind of losing everything or at least at least i thought that i lost everything What I did gain was ultimate autonomy, and I can do whatever the fuck I want. So if I'm not ultimate autonomy, ding. (laughs) Right. True. Um, And and, and that's that's a really amazing thing. You know, no one's scheduling my life for me, and uh, it's it's a kind of freedom that I've never felt before. (laughs) So uh, yeah, I'm gonna do it next week. Uh, I'm gonna do the same menu next week. Um, But but week to week, depending upon what's going on in my life, uh, I'm, I'm either gonna do it or I'm not gonna do it yeah i'm not i'm not committed to anything and that's the most freeing thing that i've probably felt in a long time
0: you know i thought i thought we were living this very day-by-day existence during covid when we were just kind of all waiting and seeing what this pandemic would do to us was going to do to our industry um and and now it almost feels like we're living this second to second existence not knowing what's going to erupt on on any given street not knowing who's going to be arrested not knowing what's going to get set on on fire where are you feeling on the vulnerability scale right now with what's going on security-wise in this country?
1: Oh, more, more, more vulnerable than ever. It feels like, like, like every day is a new year, you know? Like, I don't know what people are going to be like or how cops are going to react. Um, it, it feels like, especially in Philly, um, like we're in the middle of a civil, civil war, you know? Um, at night, I hear... The helicopters and, and, and sirens and um I mean those things aren't very new to me in general. But uh people were people are uh setting off fireworks and shooting guns and I can't tell which is which. And uh you know during the day when these protests happen and I see people, you know <laughs> strapped up in riot gear um against people in bandanas and <laughs> and raised fists. Um it's it's very I wouldn't say it's unsettling to me because I feel like I've been, I've been being prepared for this moment by my, my entire life. You know, <laughs> um, my mom's always talked about it, but something, something that really did make me kind of unsettled was when even she, through all of her teaching and, and, and tutelage of this moment for, throughout my entire life was like, I never thought that I would see this ever again. And so I feel terribly for her and terribly for the generation that, that thought that they that they marched against against this, and I don't think anyone was naive enough to think that uh you know the world had changed, but maybe we wouldn't see this sort of just this this sort of violence ever again. Um, the last time there was a riot here in Philadelphia was 1967. So much has changed then, uh, but not really.
0: You wrote a poem the other day. You you post poetry. You make zines. There's there's a lot of other art that goes into your life and uh, you know comes out of your existence besides food. The poem is called "Have you ever heard a, a siren before?" I was wondering if you'd read it.
1: Yeah, I got to Do I have it? <laughs> <laughs> have you ever heard a siren before? Have you ever gasped your body into shivers for fear of the sort of anyone you might know uh, blaring out their final wail? Have you ever heard a siren in your living room, down your hallway, upstairs, and down into your unfinished basement? Does it ripple the still waters of your toilet bowl, peel your peeling paint, or darken the brown stain on your, on your ceiling, right below your tub from years of a leak you finally afforded to fix? Does it rattle your walls morning, noon, night? Have you ever heard a siren? Does it sound like heaven or hell to you, inhale or exhale for you? Does it clench or release your jaw? How of your chest? Does your heart sprint, sprint, sprint? Have you ever heard a siren before? Chase like cats in an alley, dice games, cash, pop wheelies, jump rope, tonka tanks, army men, basketball game, football jersey, wave cap. Have you ever heard of a black child? Do they sound like pop music? Oops, they did it again. Poison, molly, percocet. Have you ever waited like a Karen? Do sirens quench you when you finally hear them? Do you gulp down red, white, and blue? Do you burp stars? Have you ever even worn stripes? They wrap around your body like bars. They drag your feet. They feel like sandpaper against your skin, like a cot on the floor. They're cold. They feel like you ain't even do nothing in the first place. And the, and the title of it is Apple Pie.
0: It's powerful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, there's, there's this duality in, the, in that poem where, you know, uh, I know that a lot of people haven't heard Simons like this, and I, and I always have um, growing up. Um, they, sound, they sound different now, but not, not unfamiliar. And uh, those those pieces where, you know, I mentioned like the interior of a space uh, are, are not just my home, but lots of people's homes that I've been to, you know, of uh, 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 struggling people.
0: I, I know you're posting up in Philly with your mom right now. What's for dinner tonight?
1: You know, I don't really know. Uh, I just got a, a bunch of um, mustard greens and and turnips uh, from a farmer friend of mine who's who delivering in the city who just hit me up and was like, yo do you want this stuff? <laughs> so I'm probably going to cook some of that um, and go into the cabinets and see what's there. Uh, when I when I cook for myself, I mostly make greens right now. I've been making <laughs> greens for the past three months just because they're just so... There's something about them, you know, stew greens. There's something about them that really uh, grounds me but also charges me and it feels nourishing and it feels... It feels like it deserves to be shared. They, ex- they extend, you know, so um, they're they're easy to freeze.
0: I've been doing a lot of greens too. Uh, Mar- March and April for me were were largely just big pots of greens.
1: Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Will
0: you tell me about your card of yams dish.
1: Yeah, um, like I mentioned earlier, I uh, I read a lot of literature um, <clears throat> and wanted like the the, the more. Seminal works in um, Black literature is *Invisible Man* um, by Ralph Ellison, and uh, the book is about the, the the title the title character is Invisible Man. He's unnamed, um, traveling traveling away from himself. He left the South and moved into like Har- Harlem Renaissance era Harlem, and uh, lived in a dorm in the YMCA. Uh, was trying to uh, find like an air of self importance and joining several different movements and being swayed in many, many directions. Um, but at one point in the book, he, he's very confused and leaves the, um, the YMCA and, and, and bolts down, down the avenue and uh, runs into a Southern man selling yams or sweet potatoes off of a cart. And they're hot and uh, he asks for one and he gives it to him. And it's simply uh, served to him with a little bit of butter and he eats it and he just feels so like replenished in that moment um, and it sends him back to Georgia, back home in his mind and in his body. And uh, me having like left Philadelphia and moved to New York, um, there's anyone who moves to New York from some other place is trying to become something more than himself. And um, I spent many years doing that and so I really resonated with that moment. Um, and I kind of had a moment like that myself um, in New Orleans, when I, um, I went to this event called Gumbo Jubilee that was put on by a man named Dr. Howard Conyers. And, and, and uh, his father grows sweet potatoes in South Carolina, um, which, which just so happens to be ancestrally where my folks are from. And it was the sweetest, most beautiful thing that I'd ever put in my mouth at that time. Um, when I saw it, I, I saw they were just dry roasted. There was nothing. There was no oil. There was no salt. There was no nothing. Um, and they were being slow roasted over coals. And when I walked, um, up to them, I could see the sugar caramelizing on the outside of the potato. And so he gave it to me, um, and I ate it and it tasted like a candy yam, just all on its own. And I was like, what the hell is up with these potatoes? And I I felt like they transformed me. Um, so when I asked, uh, Dr. Connors about it, he told me that his father um, got the seed in a in an exchange with someone who um, died not, not long after the seed was given to him. Um, it was payment for a car or a truck or something. And um, so he started growing them. And I learned that that seed is quite possibly as old and hadn't been changed um, and is as old as Antebellum, South Carolina. And I was like, that's why it transformed me, you know? Um, I ate something that's traveled almost... 150 years, you know? Um, so I got back to New York, and a couple months later, I drove all the way back down from New York to South Carolina to pick up a whole bunch of potatoes from his father and and serve them um, at my dinner as this individual potato that that resonated with me in the same way that um, it was resonant with the the character in Invisible Man, um, where I felt like eating that potato was like a spiritual homecoming for me
0: another important dish, another, important, <laughs> another important story.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I definitely jazzed it up. I, um, I cooked them in a, in a sorghum molasses syrup with some spices, uh, for a long time, with a very low heat. So they absorbed all of that flavor. Um, I, I took them out and, uh, let them, no, I, actually, I'm sorry. I didn't take them out. I let them cool down in that syrup. And then once they were cooled down, um, and absorb, reabsorbed that moisture, I took them out and reduced that syrup um, down, way, way, way down, and mounted them with butter and served, served that uh, that butter syrup molassesy sauce on top of the potatoes um, after I, I charred the potatoes over coals. Um, and then I just garnished it with sea salt. So I served that potato like that. But the very first time I served it, I served um, that version and then just the simply roasted version Side by side, so people could get the, uh, the the version that I had initially, which was just the potato itself.
0: Omar, our show is called Takeaway Only. I'm wondering what your big takeaway is from trying to sustain honeysuckle and trying to sustain yourself during this time.
1: My my biggest takeaway is that it's not just me. It's not it's, it's not about myself. Um, even even with all the tension and 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 division. Um, in our nation, I, I, I find that we are definitely in this together um, as, as a national community. Uh, it's difficult for me to reconcile what's happening right now um, and what's been happening right now, or not right now, but what's been happening, period. Um, concentrated within these past three months, um, conjectured with our, our entire history, but um, it is impossible for us to, uh, to see any sort of progress or change if we're if we're continuing to um, focus on tribalism and and um, I don't know how to overcome that, but my, my takeaway is to learn how to do that. Um, and hopefully I'm not I'm not necessarily optimistic, but uh, I mean this election maybe maybe that can happen. But my <laughs> my heart my heart wants it, but my mind says that's probably not gonna
0: happen. Oh man, let's vote. <laughs> let's get let's get everybody registered to vote pass out bean pies in in line at the polls
1: I would totally do that I'm actually gonna write that down (laughs) Um, (laughs) call me
0: call me I'll do it with you that'd be awesome Omar thank you so much for your time today thank you for being here thank you for your work I appreciate you
1: thank you man appreciate it
0: that was Omar Tate you can follow him on Instagram at Coltrane215 and you can follow Honeysuckle at Honeysuckle underscore pop up Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Khan, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Khan for Freetime Media. Our logo is by Reynald Philippe at B-Pulse. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardu, Raphael Weil, and to the whole team at Welcome. Check out their important community building work at welcomeconference.org. We're back Monday. This is Takeaway Only.